0: Well, it's good to discover that I'm not warm, kind, and friendly. (laughs) Um, I said to the first service this morning that um, I'm always conscious when I come to the USA that my accent betrays me. I hope it's not a distraction for you. Uh, It's called Educated Glasgow, if you're interested. Uh, Not like the little boy near Seattle who turned to his mummy and said, Mummy, is that man from China? Uh, Which I thought was a little harsh on my semi-mellifluous Scottish accent. But as I said earlier, it could have been a lot worse. He could have said, is he from England? (laughs) And that would not have been good. Well, its it really is a privilege for me to be here. With you. To minister in a church that takes the Word of God and the heart of God for the world to know Him and belong to Him is a great privilege. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the first book of Samuel, chapter 14. Uh, Let me Before I read, um, make a few brief comments. The first is this. The most significant thing about each and every one of you, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your age, whatever your history, heritage, color, culture, the most significant thing about you is what you think about God. What you think about God will shape, style, direct and motivate everything that you are. Whether like Cassidy that I met Taylor, who's a student, whether like HAL, you're a geographer or Chuck, a tax consultant, or whether you're like the three Bs, uh, Brooks and Nina. Uh, Brad and Beth, uh, Brandon and Rachel, and you go to the ends of the earth. The most significant thing about you is what you believe in God. What you believe about him, whether you recognize it or not, will determine the shape and style of everything about you. And the second thing I want to say by way of preliminary before we read the passage is to ask you this question. What made John Elliot missionary to the Red Indians in northern Pennsylvania in the late 17th century? What made David Brainerd a missionary along the Susquehanna? What made... William Chalmers Burns go to China, Hudson Taylor go to China? What made Amy Michael leave the comforts of Northern Ireland to eventually bury her life, her whole life in India? What made Jim Elliott go to the Auka Indians? If we had the privilege of asking them, what made you do that? I wonder what they might say to us this morning. 1 Samuel 14, we're breaking into an unfolding, escalating, redemptive historical narrative. God has covenanted himself to a people to be their God and for them to be his people. He has borne with them. He has patiently nurtured them, nourished them. They have consistently grieved him, disappointed him, provoked his righteous anger. They plead with God for a king and God gives them a king. Beware of what you ask God for. He may give it to you. He gives them a king. A king who begins well, but who ends disastrously. And chapter 14 follows naturally on from the previous chapter. You know, the Bible wasn't written in chapters. Chapters were devised in the 13th century and verses in the 16th century to help us navigate our way through God's written revelation of himself. In the previous chapter, Saul is exposed as a man who has drifted far from God. And with him, the people have drifted far from God. As it is with leaders, so it often is, sadly and tragically, with people. And so we come to chapter 14. God's people are in a cowardly way, and hiding from the Philistines who vastly outnumber them. They are doing nothing to uphold the honor of Yahweh, the covenant king. And so the writer proceeds with his narrative. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I wonder why. Probably because his father would have forbade him. And Jonathan believed it was more important to obey God than to obey his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. He's hiding away. He is keeping the lowest profile. The people who were with him were about 600 men. And the writer would expect us, I think, understanding something of Hebrew narrative, the writer would expect us to pause and think, 600? Wow, that's double what Gideon had when he smashed the eh, the Midianites. 600? Is he not trusting God? Hebrew narrative has this unsettling, disconcerting way of not pausing to make theological or moral judgments. It expects you to join the dots. So he's got 600, double what Gideon had, and he is cowering in fear. Including among them were Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other was Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Now, why is he telling us this? He's not giving us a lesson in geography or topography. He wants to accent the faith of a man who would not be daunted by difficulty, who was willing to cross any terrain in the pursuit of the public honor of the Lord. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's a key word in Hebrew narrative. Uncircumcised. To these ungodly men who will not submit to the saving lordship of Yahweh and come under his covenant love and be marked out in this world decidedly and decisively as his. That's what that word is about. Let's go over to these ungodly, unsaved rebels. It may be. He doesn't know. He's got no access to God's secret counsel. It may be the Lord will work for us. He doesn't know. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you don't know. What matters is that you're motivated by the public honor and glory of God. And his armor bearer, whose name we never know, the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, we will show you a thing. It's very Hebraic. You're going to show him a thing, he's going to show you a thing. You think you have the upper hand? Yahweh's servants have the upper hand. Come up, we'll show you a thing. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord, notice again how prominent Yahweh is, the covenant Lord, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Not Jonathan. See that? Jonathan thinks covenantally, corporately, collegially, we might say ecclesiologically. This is, this is the old covenant church that we are engrafted into, Romans 11. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders, these bold, arrogant raiders who had pillaged and plundered, as the end of the previous chapter tells us, God's people. The raiders trembled. earth quaked, And it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Saul is is, um, embracing religion uh, at this critical moment. People often do that, don't they? They embrace religion at a critical moment. But on their terms, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Enough for religion. We don't need religion at this moment. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied, went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword. Was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, they had they had, out of fear for their own lives and livelihoods, they'd gone over to the enemy. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites. They turned, as Hebrew word, for repent. who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So, the Lord, not Jonathan, not Saul and the reinvigorated, rejuvenated Israelites, the Lord, saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond beth Let me make a few comments on the passage and then seek to uh, apply it uh, with a number of deductive applications arriving out of the passage. What does God honouring gospel faith look like? We know what it sounds like Uh, if someone asked you, what is faith? What is living faith? I'm sure most of you, I trust, would be able to say in words what living faith in the living God is. But what does it look like? How does it show itself in frail flesh? How does it manifest itself? Remember how we're told in the, in the letter of James, faith without works is dead, being alone. When faith unites you to Jesus Christ, it unites you to the Savior who went about doing good. At the time of the Reformation, um, the the Roman church um, berated the reformers, Luther, Calvin, uh, Bullinger, a number of others. They berated them. They said, this gospel that you are preaching is a recipe for moral anarchy. To tell people that faith alone in Jesus Christ alone brings the accredited righteousness of God to a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, that's a recipe for moral disaster. And the reformers, especially Calvin, had a magnificent response, and it was simply this. If you think that, you know not the gospel of God for this reason. Faith unites you to a whole Christ. Not just a Christ who justifies you and makes you right in the sight of God, but a Christ who sanctifies you. You cannot have half a Christ. A Christ who justifies but doesn't transform. If anyone is in Christ, you know the rest of the verse? But do you really know the rest of the verse? Are most of you thinking, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation? Well, that's not quite what the Greek text says, is it? If anyone is in Christ, this is Paul's point, new creation. Of course, individually, there is a a work of transformative grace in our lives, but that's not quite Paul's point there in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, they're brought into a new order, a new kingdom, a new family, a new humanity. Faith that does not evidence itself in transformed thinking, that's where it begins, and percolates down to transformed living is not what the Bible understands by living, saving faith. So what does God honoring living faith actually look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like this. Let me highlight a number of deductive applications that flow out of the text although I will somewhat expound the text as we go along. We see first of all here that God honoring faith is adventurous. It's adventurous. One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor come let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side But he didn't tell his father. The king, his officers, the 600 men that he had with him were cowering in fear. They were hiding in a pomegranate cave, and later on we're told they were hiding in holes in the ground. Jonathan could bear it no longer. Because God honoring faith never thinks that doing nothing is an option. Martin Luther described saving faith as a busy little thing. And here is Jonathan. And he knows they're vastly outnumbered. But he's undaunted. And he's willing to... Venture. He wants to do something, and what motivates him, as we'll see this a little more later. But what motivates him to this willingness to venture his life? Well, that's what he's doing, isn't it? He's got no idea what God's secret purposes are. God's purpose may have been that a moment he put his head above the parapet, boom, he'd be gone and taken to glory. He didn't know that. He didn't have a secret um, conduit to the Most High. Lord, will this lead to my triumphing over the Philistines? Can you give me some assurance? He doesn't know anything about that. He even says to his armor bearer, it may be. I've I've got no idea. It, It may be, it may not be but he is unwilling to sit by and do nothing. God-honoring faith is adventurous in this sense. It's ready to venture forth into the unknown. To many people that sounds the essence of folly, foolhardiness. Remember what we're told back in Genesis 12 about Abraham. He went out not knowing where. Where are you off to, Abraham? Uh, I don't really know. What do you mean you don't know? Uh, Well, I don't know. Is that not foolish? No. Why is it not foolish? God told me to go. Oh, oh. Your doctrine of God is the most significant thing about you. It'll shape how you think. It'll shape what you do and what you don't do. People will look at you and think, that's that's a foolish thing to do. And all heaven is saying, there's the wisest woman on the face of the planet. She's venturing her life for the honor of God. And the second thing we see here is that God honoring faith has unbounded confidence in God. He says to his armor bearer in verse verse 6, it may be the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Where did he get this theology from? Hmm? Where do you think he got it from? Well, from the Torah, the five books of Moses. What do the five books of Moses tell us? This is why the first chapters in Genesis, let let, let me just divert for a moment, hopefully I'll get back to the text. That's why the first chapters of Genesis are so profoundly vital. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning God Israel has been 400 years in exile they've been embedded in a culture of um, polytheism uh, worshipping of animals and the sun and as they're coming out they're not saying to Moses please Moses how long are the days? Well, the days are 24-hour days. text tells us that. Moses is saying, behold your God. You need to be recalibrated, renewed in your minds. Your theology needs to be purified. It needs to be it's so purified that the 400 years of embedded in a godless polytheistic culture will be eradicated from you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we could spend time following that through. But here is a man who says, the Lord, the Lord doesn't need 600. He doesn't even need two. He could accomplish all his purposes by the word of his power. As he did, as he brought creation into being out of nothing in the space day of six days, and very good. But often, most often, the Lord uses means, doesn't he? And he uses frail children of dust. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. But in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Your doctrine of God will shape everything about you. And that's why our worship services need to be saturated in setting forth the glory of God, the glory of his triunity, his majesty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his covenanted mercies. his own. Here is a man who not only has a righteous theology about God, but who lives a life that practices that theology. One of my responsibilities at Westminster uh, Presbyterian Seminary in England, uh, I teach historical theology and a few other things. I think if you're Scottish you can teach anything. Now, that's only true if you're Sinclair Ferguson, (laughs) Uh, but not for us lesser mortals. But one of the things I'm always impressing on my students is this if your understanding of God is not practical, pastoral, and personal, it isn't Christian. Martin Busser was the great Strasbourg reformer who so influenced John Calvin when he was kicked out of Geneva in 1538. You know, Calvin was kicked out of Geneva? They wanted reformation, but they didn't want it that much. So he goes to Strasbourg, and Martin Busser deeply influenced Calvin in a number of ways. But one of his great statements was true theology is never theoretical. It is always practical. Now, hear this. And the end of true theology is to live a godly life. If your theology isn't leading you to live a godly life, it isn't Christian. If your theology isn't rooted in the practice of godliness, whatever that shape may be in your life, at school, at college, Uh, in the hospital, in the factory, uh, teaching, or whatever it may be. It isn't Christian. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What you think about God will determine what you end up doing with your life. And how you will do that life, live that life, that your doctrine of God by his grace has called you to. And then thirdly, we see in the passage that God-honoring faith is always looking to serve the good of God's kingdom and God's people. Now, why does Jonathan venture forth with the armor-bearer? Well, as we'll see in a moment, principally because God's honor is being publicly defied. You see, This passage is not really about Jonathan. Well, well, it is about Jonathan, but it's not about Jonathan. It's about Jonathan's God. If you were to sum up the message of this narrative, is it, you know, Hebrew narrative? Is this disconcert? The, the Bible is very frustrating. You don't find that you read the Bible and you're thinking, um, I, I find that almost every day. I'm saying, Lord could you please pause a wee minute and tell me a bit more? No, on we go, on we go. Because the Bible expects you to join up the dots. That's why you need to read, know the whole Bible. It's organic. It's not a string of perils with purple passages. It's an organic whole. It's one book. not 66 books. It's one book that's organically connected. And here we find... Jonathan, motivated principally, as we'll see in a moment, by God's public honor, but clearly to serve the good of God's people. He sees God's people languishing, passively sitting, trembling before the enemies of God, And he resolves to do something about it. One of the marks of God-honoring faith is that it's always looking to serve the good of the saints. How can I serve for the good of my brothers and sisters here in Claremont? What what can I do? It it could be almost incidental, putting away chairs. You think, well, it's not very much. I make it almost my business, hope I can say this honestly, wherever I go to watch out for people who are willing to put away chairs. I think it's a great mark of godliness. Someone doesn't come up to them and say, look, could you help put away the chairs or clear up the mess? They just see it and they go and do it. You think, well, that's not much. I think that's huge, actually. I think it betrays a servant-hearted spirit like the servant of the Lord who stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. The heart of God-honoring faith is servant-heartedness. And you see this here. Um, Jonathan is seeking to... Do good to God's people. I love it when people hear people say, and sometimes I've said it to me, not too often, sadly. You're a do-gooder. I would that the whole world was full of do-gooders. Because Mark, Acts ten thirty-eight, the first thing that Peter says when he evangelizes Cornelius, You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. What's the first thing he says? He went about doing good. I think that is one of the stellar moments in the New Testament. He went about doing good. Washing tired feet. Ultimately dying a sin atoning death. Death to do good to the people of God. And fourthly, God-honoring faith has the capacity to encourage and galvanize others. So Jonathan's actions was, were used by God to galvanize the Israelites and even those who had gone over to maybe not collaborate with the Philistines but simply to preserve their lives maybe their families, and some measure of sanity, they're galvanized. They come to their senses. And they also turned, the Hebrew verb shub, they turned, they repented. One man's action galvanized people. You just never know what your little life can be used for in the sovereign purposes of God. You might never know till you get to glory. And you'll be a star. People will come up to you and, and they'll say, you know, it was your life that God used ultimately 25 years later to bring me to Christ. You just never know what impact your little life might have on others as you seek to serve the king. God delights to use the weak things of the world. Jonathan Edwards would often speak of heaven being a place of revelations. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? The first will be last. The last will be first. All the people that we place on pedestals and we're so guilty of that in evangelical Christianity. We'll think, well, where are they? They're three and a half million light years at the edge of heaven. Oh, they've got a great view and the Lord loves them and they're with them. Who, who are these? I don't know who any of them were. My special ones. They did good. Their little lives were used to touch myriads beyond anything they could have imagined. Their life touched that life, and that life touched two lives, and those two lives touched four, and there was exponential growth and development. We don't have time. Finally, God-honoring faith is above all concerned with God's honor. That's the significance of the word uncircumcised in verse 6. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It's not just that Jonathan is fed up waiting, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for something to happen. And he's got this restless military spirit within him. He sees men who defy the living God, who will not be embraced in his love because God had said through Abraham to Abraham, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. But they would not come under the lordship of the God of the covenant people. They were defiant. They were rebellious. And this is what clearly the Hebrew text highlights and emphasizes. You, you, you get the same thing in, in, I said this this morning, I think, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And so often you read that passage and people think, isn't it wonderful? Little David beats big Goliath, you know, uh, God raises up this young lad, and by faith he conquers these giants, and we need to go forth and conquer the giants. That's not what that passage is about. Six times the passage is punctuated by the same Hebrew verb, defy. The Philistines through Goliath were defying the living God. It was the public honor of God that David was seeking. To stand for and hazard his life for. And so the passage ends. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Not Jonathan. He fades into the background. He is simply a conduit, an instrument. The Lord saved Israel that day. God gets all the glory because all the glory is His. At our best, we are unprofitable servants. We will be astonished when the Lord dispenses His rewards and glory. And you know what we'll do? We'll just cast them all before Him. And say, From you, through you, and to you are all things. To you, Lord, alone belongs the glory. So if you were to ask John Eliot, I hope you know about John Eliot. If you don't, go home and read about John Eliot. David Brainerd, Hudson Taylor. William Chalmers Burns, I hope you know about Burns, one of the great, great, one of my two heroes, Calvin and Burns. A. Maker Michael. You could go on and on and on, couldn't you? You ask them, what made you leave everything and go? I'm no prophet, you know that. I can tell you in one word what they would say. They would say, God, God. God, <laughs> um, would you like to expand? No, God. Now there is like an iceberg, isn't it? that there, is the, there are depths, depths. The sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth who made me for himself, who sent his son to redeem me and save me from hell and bring me not just to heaven but into his kingdom and into his family. For him, we go. At a very significant time, actually, In the earthly life of our Lord, as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, as the shadow of the cross begins to penetrate his human soul, he says to his disciples, who were believing men apart from Judas, he says to believing men, washed clean by his word, remember John 13, who owned him as the Messiah King, the Savior, he said to them, Have faith in God. We talk too much about faith and too little about God. Too much about faith, too little about God. Joan and I ministered in Cambridge for 17 years and we lived next door to a lovely couple. Um, He was a retired academic at Cambridge University. And we were in the front garden adjacent to each other and he said to me, you know, Ian, I wish I had faith like you. (laughs) I said, John, it's not faith you need. Faith won't take you anywhere. Neither it will. You need Jesus Christ. Faith Faith always takes a direct object. Theologically, if not always grammatically. The important thing is in God." Who is this God? That's why our Reformation forebears took so much time and care and effort in setting forth God's revelation concerning Himself. This whole book can be summed up in three words. Behold your God. Let us pray. We are, Lord, ashamed that our knowledge of you, our experience of you, is so shallow. We think so little of your grandeur, your glory, your majesty, your grace, your kindness, your power. Forgive us, Lord. Make us men and women and boys and girls who delight in you, who love you, who make it the chief business of their lives to sink those lives into the immensities and the infinities of who you are. May our lives be shaped and styled by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.